Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine, and this week we're joined by none other than Ed Miliband to discuss, and I only half jest, how to fix the world. The former Labour leader's new book stampedes headfirst into all the great issues of our time, from taming big tech to rescuing the climate and ending the democratic disconnect. And of course, we'll also take the chance to take his mind on affairs of land and sea as well as Westminster, where he's back on the front bench as Shadow Business Secretary. Uh, Ed, thanks for joining us today. And how are you doing? Uh, Well, I'm fine. And thank you so much for um, uh, having me, Tom. It's, uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, And so I think probably best to start with the book and to give a couple of examples of what it's about to to give people a flavour. Now, one uh, going big idea is very much the Green New Deal. But I thought we wouldn't dwell on that because you've been on the podcast before and writing in Prospect about that before. But I was going to take one example from far away and one from uh, closer to home. So. First of all, your ideas about how to fix the rental sector, where you zone in on Vienna, which whose housing market I confess I knew nothing about before. Well, it's interesting, this, isn't it? Because the whole issue of affordable housing has been a sort of long-term problem now in Britain for decades, and it's a. I think when you look think about the list of policy failures, I would say it's. Of, of governments of both parties, I'd say it's pretty near the top of the list. Um, and what's so fascinating about Vienna is they build social housing. They it started in the interwar period, so called Red Vienna, and they carry on. They've carried on doing it. And so, as a capital city, it's somewhere people can live, whether they're rich or poor, at in an affordable way. And you know. I was part of this Shelter Social Housing Commission a couple of years back with Jim O'Neill, former Conservative Minister, and Saeed Avasi, former chair of the Conservative Party. And we all agreed that governments governments had tried lots of different things to try and fix the housing market. But the thing they hadn't tried for decades was actually to build social housing at scale. And I don't believe that any government is going to get close to the kind of housing supply we need or stabilising our housing market or making it affordable for people without building social housing um, in a big way. Uh, and that's one of the recommendations, one of the one of the ideas in the book. 
Um, and, and you don't think you could get there by just, you know, I'm thinking if I was Mr. Barrett, I might want to just come in and get rid of the green belt or something as a different way to get housing built. Would that would that not do the job? Do you think it has to be social? Well, I mean, quite apart from the environmental problems of that, I mean, that hasn't been the experience. I mean, go- governments have tried everything they can think of, quotas on affordable housing, but it tends to, has tended not to be affordable. Th- th- there's a dysfunctionality to just leaving this to the market the 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 market is never going to deliver affordable housing at the scale that is required and the various interventions that are tried by government tend to be deeply imperfect and also then you have a whole issue about uh, developers even with land with planning permission hoarding the land because they, they want house prices to go up you know there's a they've got an interest in house prices going up i think it is a classic example of a place where markets on their own just can't fix the problem that we face. And I'd say that both theoretically, but also on the basis of experience. And and the other thing that was so interesting about doing this social housing commission, I think Jim in particular kept saying, look, why do we see this as a as an expenditure, not an investment? You know, it, we, we used to, there's this fascinating fact that um, of every pound we spent on housing in this country, 80, 80 pence, used to go on investing in bricks and mortar and 20% on sort of subsidy. Uh, now the opposite is true. And a lot of that is housing benefit. Um, so so you know, tw- tw- now 20p goes on, on house building, if that. And so, you know, and, and the point is this, which is you've got to be at the scale of, well, we said in the Shelters Housing Commission, 150,000 social homes, council house and housing association homes a year, not in the sort of, well, 10,000 or indeed less. Uh, where we te- where where governments tend to be at the moment, and by the way, that isn't to say that there aren't issues to do with how much affordable housing we should specify for new developments, or you know our very deregulated private rental sector. And and the problem with this is that the revolution that's taken place is not a home ownership revolution. Home ownership is now actually down to relatively back to where levels it was three decades ago. The revolution is a growth of insecure private tenancies. That That is what has had to pick up the slack. One thing I found absolutely fascinating, Ed, was that you say that if you do the costings properly and take into account the rent you'll get back and all the rest of it and the assets you build up, this thing's going to cost, building at that sort of scale is actually going to cost less than or similar to hs2 indeed and you might even say it's even more value for money um yeah i mean it's like it, the, the we did these calculations and the costs start at so 10 billion a year gross costs but they they drop significantly uh, and there's different ways of interpreting this once you take account of the different flowback, whether that is in relation to uh, tax receipts or sort of rental income or benefit expenditure. So there's a whole range of reasons why the, the net cost is significantly lower uh, than the gross cost. And and by the way, you know, that's even before you get to the social impact. You know, I think it's really important to say why this is a massive problem. If you're in the private rental sector in the UK, you have no guarantee from one year to the next, sometimes even a few months to the next, uh, that you're going to be in the same home. What does that mean for the instability that families face? It's completely unaffordable uh, to to live in many parts of our country unless you're on a very, very high wage. So, you know, there are just sort of huge problems. I mean, there's a reason why places like Vienna build socialising. It's not just Vienna, by the way. You know, Singapore has a, a, a system where... Um, people um, where, where they build social housing. There's, there's lots of different places around the world that recognise 
that, you know, you need a mixed economy here. And we've moved away from that. Uh, and so, I mean, in the spirit of go big, Ed, though, I mean, like, you know, you think about 20 minutes off the journey time to Birmingham versus solving the housing crisis. And <laughs> you do sort of wonder if we've got our priorities wrong or do you want to go big on everything at once and do HS2 as well? Look, I've actually always seen the case for investing in infrastructure, including high-speed rail. I've got particular issues about the way it's being done. There's partly the problems it's causing in my constituency, but also that is it really part of a, a sort of tackling regional inequality agenda, linking up towns and not just, I mean, it just so happens in South Yorkshire, it essentially bypasses South Yorkshire apart from a sort of non-HS2 bit to Sheffield. Uh, so it goes through South Yorkshire, but doesn't actually deliver on it. Look, I, I think there's a wider issue here, Tom, which is, We've got to invest in the future as a country. And we've had 10 years of austerity. I think whether it's housing or transport or the climate crisis and investing in tackling the climate crisis, we have big investments we need to make as a country. And, and it's the right thing to do. No, I was going to say, so if investing is one big theme and you're, you're kind of rejecting the austerity logic that says because we're already quite maxed out we can't invest in everything at once so you're, you're going big in that sense another big going big theme is around decentralization of power and i wondered if you could just tell the listeners a bit about the case study you've got in there is it matthew brown the guy in um in, in preston yes tell us what he's doing yeah i mean it's look it's really interesting this because part of the book is is looking at the ways in which people are making change on the ground. So part of it is about the big ideas that can change the country that we can look else for, to elsewhere. But also the, 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 I think part of my argument is outside central government, people are making change happen, social movements, local government, and so on. Now, what, what is Matthew Brown doing in Preston? It's what they call community wealth building. And it's really a, a sort of wider movement now right across the UK. And, and the idea is this, which is, using the big amounts of money that public that the public sector spends not just councils but universities the police the nhs and others to say it's not just about the lowest cost cheapest price we can get it's about how do we build wealth in our communities and so this is what there, there was a, a plan to redevelop Preston a number of years back in the wake of the financial crisis. It collapsed. Matthew Brown was responsible for regeneration. And he said, well, hang on, let's just do it a different way. And he worked with CLES, Centre for Local Economic Strategies, a think tank or do tank. And, and it's about, you know, actually favouring businesses that pay the living wage, uh, keeping the money in Preston and in Lancashire, encouraging cooperatives. It, this, this movement actually began in Cleveland, Ohio, and it's being done in Preston. And it's now we're seeing increasingly increasing amounts of this elsewhere. We're seeing people looking at community banks and other things. And I think it is a really exciting idea because I think it, I think it, set, it takes seriously the way government spends its money and the extent to which it encourages or discourages the spreading of wealth, power and, and ownership. I think it takes seriously the the knock-on costs of paying people poverty wages, for example. It might not score to the council's budget, but it scores to DWP in the payments of tax credits or universal credit and so on. And and it takes seriously the idea that local that local government you know, has power and can make a difference. And and I think it, I mean, look, this goes to a wider point, really, which I make in the book, which is, and I know this has become a sort of cliche, but I think, I think, in a way, doing this in reality is not a cliche, which is we are, England is far too centralised. 
remains far too centralised, even on the government's sort of piecemeal approach of devolving some powers. And, you know, part of what we've got to take seriously in a comprehensive way, uh, the spreading of power and resources and devolving power. And, you know, I'm really struck talking to Andy Burnham because he is re-regulating the buses in Greater Manchester. But if Andy Burnham wants to run his own municipal bus company, as they do in other parts of Europe, I mean, in some cases they make it free of charge. I, I cite an example of Dunkirk where they've made it free and it's been a great success, free bus travel. If he wants to run his own municipal bus company, he can't by law. And that says something, just that, that, that small example says something about the way we continue to be run as a country with Westminster hoarding so much power. So, I mean, there's, there's nice little stories at the individual level. You know, got your, your, your friend Pat in Doncaster who takes the initiative and pays the church's bills when uh, there's nowhere else looking after people when there's a, there's a flood on. And you can see all this local initiative. But for people from the sort of social democratic tradition, which would include you, Ed, there's always two nagging worries, aren't there, about all this decentralisation, despite the kind of local heroes. The first one is does it kind of does it does it cancel out if every Preston pound ends up being spent in Preston um does that mean that less is going over the border into Burnley or wherever it might be and do we do it do we worry about getting stuck in a zero sum game so is it just protectionism you know what I don't think it is and I think that's and I think it's true for two reasons look first of all Often it was multinational private companies that this money was going to, uh, and the proceeds, if you like, that the spoils are going to their shareholders. So I think this is a redistribution, not from sort of, you know, Pimlico to Preston, but actually from sort of shareholders generally at the top of society to um to 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 people kind of within an area like Preston that's the first thing the second thing is some people might say well you know is it is it a sort of unlevel playing field that is being sort of put into place well maybe to some extent that's true because it is looking at social and economic outcomes but what i would say is that the previous approach was actually an unlevel playing field in the sense of the obvious all of the bias in the system was to go for the lowest cost option or what looked like the lowest cost option. I think it's a really important point, this. You know, in the old world, Preston would be making its decision. They'd say, well, let's outsource our school meals, for example, you know, uh, lowest cost, you know, minimum wage workers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that might be okay for Preston, but the wider cost to society, I mean, the direct cost in terms of people being paid the minimum wage, having to rely on the universal credit or tax credits, government having to top it up, that's never taken into account in those calculations. And that's even before you get onto the impact on society of people growing up in poverty, all of the implications that has. And that's even before you get onto the question of the money that is there, the, the kind of demand question of the money that is in those communities to support local businesses and so on. So I think there is a really important idea here about sort of value, how we measure value and what actually a kind of fair way of approaching these issues looks like. And to be fair to the coalition government, they did bring in something, I think it was in 2012, called the Social Value Act, which started to sort of nibble away at some of these questions, or at least at least opened up. Uh, issues around some of these questions. I think there's further we could go. I think we could be thinking about government procurement centrally, how we use that. You know, it's 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 using public intervention 
to actually support your social and economic objectives rather than a very, very narrow kind of cost-driven view, which actually turns out to be more costly in the long run. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And what do you make of, my colleague Samir did a very friendly review of your book, called it very thought-provoking, but he did sort of say, you know, do, do we really want the local hospital that's got enough headaches already having to worry about supporting the wider economy. What would you say to that sort of just very pragmatic scepticism? I think that public institutions and indeed private institutions are accountable, should be accountable to their communities and should be aware of the impact they're having on their communities. And an approach that just simply says, let's privatise, let's outsource, let's just go for the least cost. I don't actually think serves communities well. And I think I think procurement sounds like the dullest, nerdiest issue. It's kind of the issue that people probably think, Tom, you and I spend sort of hours kind of talking about. When you were actually, unplugging the phone to stop Gordon Brown ringing you up. Yeah, that's probably true. But actually, it really does matter. I mean, it really does matter. And, you know, if just to use another sort of nerdy phrase of mine, you know, I use this phrase to some derision when I was Labour leader, pre-distribution, i.e. not just after the fact redistribution through the tax and benefit system uh, to, to, to create equity, but before you get to taxes and benefits, what kind of economy are you creating? This is central. This is absolutely the central challenge we face. I think I'm right in saying that around two thirds of children in poverty are in families where their parents are working. Now, you know, what are we going to do about that? Well, if we're saying, well, the public, the way pub, the public sector spends its money is off limits when it comes to tackling those questions. We're never going to tackle that issue after the fact redistribution on its own won't be able to do it. OK, and then one last potential worry is, um, you know, the one part of the UK, as you, as you detail, where like there's been really serious devolution now is... Scotland and um, obviously it's it's sort of been a disaster for the Labour Party because people have started identifying with Scotland as a country before they identify with the Labour movement or the old kind of class 
solidarity. Um, have you worried at all that people might sort of, you know, if, if Andy Burnham succeeds too much, we could end up instead of with a Labour Manchester in 20 years time with a Manchester First Party running things? And, and I suppose, <laughs> does it matter? I mean, maybe maybe that is the future. I mean, look, I don't really see it that way. I mean, it's one of these things where, and this is what the book is trying to do, is to say, look, lift our eyes from the the kind of minutiae or day-to-day nature of, of British politics and think, what do other countries do? And no, when you, you know, we are the most centralised country, I think, in Europe. Even France is, is less centralised. You're known for its strong central state is less centralised than us. It isn't a good way to run your democracy. And it, and it destroys, it, it, it makes people disillusioned about democracy. I talk about bus services in my book and an experience I had when I was first an MP about somebody saying to me, why don't people vote, the people, reason people don't vote in local elections is because something as crucial as bus services, you can't actually have much impact because it's not in that, at that point, it wasn't, it wasn't remotely in the hands of local representatives. And so I really don't think, I, 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 don't, I don't buy that. Secondly, local experimentation, local examples can be incredibly helpful in showing the way you know what andy is doing in relation to housing and 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 housing the homeless the so-called housing first policy what sadiq khan is trying to do around air pollution we should be inspired by local examples i mean they they can show us the way and and you know, there's been this odd conspiracy of left and right in relation to centralization, which is the left has thought this is the only way you achieve social justice and avoid a postcode lottery, when in fact the opposite is true. We get we have massive postcode lotteries from our centralized system. And the right has thought, oh God, you create help beds of socialism. And I think I think both left and right have been wrong about this. It isn't to say there isn't a really important role for central government and a central state. Um and where the way the central state works is another issue I, I try and talk about in the book. But but I think, you know, I honestly think we've got our democracy demands. We bring power closer to to, to local people. So, um, an argument through these different ideas about investment and decentralisation and the rest of it, I think, is that in the end, you know, what we might call primary colours politics is going to be more more important and more uh, get more done maybe than the kind of I don't know pastel shades politics of the of the of the new Labour. Yes, and I think I've I've seen you say that you know you wish you'd been bolder in some ways in 2015, and that Jeremy Corbyn, for all his problems, fared better in 2017 by you know rather than talking about tinkering with the student loan formula, say let's abolish fees, so it becomes something that kind of captures the imagination. Okay, and if it is, then when Labour thought kind of even bigger in 2019, I mean there was very go big ideas like the right to buy on from your private landlord and stuff kicking around in the 2019 manifesto. Uh, and I wonder, was, was the party thinking too big at that point? Can you push this too far? Well, look, I think there, look, in a way, what I hope people, people will, lots of people won't agree with all the ideas I have in my book, but I, what I've tried to do is sort of partly learn from experience. And, and it's important to say about this book, this is not a handbook of electoral strategy. I'm not sure people would take a handbook of electoral strategy from me anyway, but you know, this is, about what does the country need and it's and you've got I, I feel like you know we are in we've got deep and entrenched inequality in our country um exposed again by uh, the covid uh crisis uh, we've been through the financial crisis brexit and what covid has 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 tragically illustrated about our our country some of the deep divides and we've got the climate crisis we're in the decisive decade on the climate crisis 
I don't see, to start from the needs of the country, I don't see how you can look at all that and think, okay, the answer is a bit of tinkering around the edges. Um, and I think you've got to, you know, I dis- didn't agree with everything New Labour did, but it, it did try and start from an analysis of where the country was, right? So that's the first thing. Secondly, on the elections point, so I learnt the, the, from 2017... I think 2017, I'd call a sort of turbocharged version of my 2015 manifesto, and I think it, I think it, it sort of moved people more. Um, it had a sense of, as you said, primary colours, and and so so as a matter of electoral strategy, although that's not the sort of primary purpose of the book, I, I think it, I think, you know, thinking those primary colours is important. I think 2019, we were undone by a number of factors reputationally jeremy's leadership had taken a big a big knock brexit divided our coalition and we did promise too much to too many people i mean it looked like we were going to do everything at once and people don't buy that i think that's uh fair i think the only other point i would make on this go big question the central thesis of the book is actually what really strikes me is the change in the nature of my conservative opponents so Cameron's argument was Miliband is living in a Marxist universe. He wants to cap energy prices. He wants to go on about inequality. And the, and his argument, particularly in the Remain campaign, him and Osborne, was things are pretty good. Vote Remain, right? The Johnson-May argument is a different argument. I mean, it's really striking this. Their argument, or Johnson in particular, is there are deep inequalities in our country, uh, or as Theresa May put it, burning injustices. I can fix them. Now, Personally, I don't believe he can, and I think his sort of vacuous speech on levelling up rather illustrated that. But leave that to one side. I think that tells that should tell the centre-left something about where the political battleground is. The next election is not going to be status quo conservatism versus whatever Labour offers. It's going to be who can deliver the change the country needs. And I think that's where the battleground uh, is going to be. And I think that pushes us to show that the change that we can initiate is substantive uh, and big. So, I mean, you can point to specific things like, you know, the energy price cap or whatever, where they've sort of pinched it off you. And you've also got the the Conservatives at the moment, like, you know, the pandemic has forced them to to go big, as it were, hasn't it? Like the furlough scheme, no one had thought of that. And there it is, up and running, and everyone knows that Rishi's paying the wages of an awful lot of people, and maybe they're getting some credit for that at the moment as i said at the beginning you are a labor front bencher now i don't think i meet anyone who sees uh labor at the moment as projecting an image of going big if if they're aware of a story about labor at the moment it's something about you know trying to purge like various uh, depending on your point of view you know radical or headbanging people out of the party it, it doesn't feel like labor's projecting a, a big vision of how the country could be different or do you think i'm being unfair i'd say people should be patient i mean look we've we're in one phase and we don't know when we're going to be out of it of this parliament which is the appalling circumstances of the pandemic and i think that has been totally understandably top of mind it's top of mind for businesses that i speak to every day uh, and indeed the public what i know from my conversations with kia i mean he's a nice quote about the book but what i know from my conversations with him is that he does believe that when it comes to our economy and the economic change we need, tinkering around the edges is not the answer. And that we need, we as a country do need big change. And there is a process of policy development which takes place and, you know, it happens with oppositions. The, the, there is a cycle to these things. So, you know, look, I hope my, contrib- my book is a contribution to the debate within Labour about 
what's the kind of policy agenda for the future, but also other parties as well. But, you know, I'd, I'd say sort of watch this space. I'd, I'd, you know, and, and look, the other thing I would just say is this, which is anyone who thinks they know the next the outcome of the next election uh, i wouldn't take them very seriously this you know i resigned as labor leader in 2015 after that we had i'm not saying cause and effect brexit trump the election of jeremy corbyn you know the 29 2017 election which everybody said theresa may was gonna win with a massive majority the 2019 election i mean politics is very the future is very very unknowable and i think that actually the fight of the future the, the fight of the next election is going to be the fight about the future who can learn the lessons we've, we've been through this crisis where we've seen an incredible spirit for the british people but we've seen our institutions way off that spirit so whether that is the pay of key workers the underinvestment in our public services who has power at work and who doesn't all of those questions i think are now open and and i think and I think we owe it to ourselves and the country to learn the lessons of that. And I think that will be the de- those will be the defining questions of the coming election. The last thought, though, if you think of the last time Labour was on its way into government in the mid nineties, and I think it's fair to say a slightly control freak operation. I was just trying to think if Tony Blair or indeed Gordon Brown, how they would have felt about a kind of Jack Straw or a Margaret Beckett or a Robin Cook writing a big book with big ideas on housing transport and you know absolutely everything else doesn't it sort of I don't know does it does it not say that Labour feels quite a long way from office that that Keir's relaxed enough to let you publish this and put a nice a nice quote on the on the back because he's not he's not terribly worried about people costing this and and getting into tax bombshells and all of that well the the truth is though that this is not the next as i say in the forward to the book this is not the uh, the introduction to the book this is not the next labor manifesto this is a set of ideas arising out of my podcast no i think what it says actually um is that um we're in a very different era from the 1990s not in the sense that you said but in the sense of i think look i think people so much is open tom so much is open about what does the future look like and, you know, the conservative, I saw the way I think about this is you had the 1979 to 2008 period, and that was sort of one settlement. And it's like to use a sort of rather maybe awkward uh, footballing metaphor, we're in sort of injury, we've had kind of 30 years of injury time of the old settlement. And, and, and the question is, what does a new settlement look like? And I think that that is what different parties in their different ways are groping or, or, or trying to find a route towards. Um, and look, my I don't expect all 20 ideas in my book <laughs> to be the, the next Labour manifesto. I hope it can help. I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully take some of them forward in my real shadow business secretary where they're in my area. But hopefully it can stimulate a debate and thinking in Labour, but also in other parties. You know, Saeed Avasi is on the book saying nice things about it, you know, across the political spectrum in saying, how do we define this new settlement? Because goodness me, the old settlement isn't working for lots of people in our country. We're in this, as I say, you know, I, I want to sort of emphasise this point. We we have talked about the climate before, but, you know, if there is one overwhelming issue apart from coronavirus that we face in this decade, it is the climate crisis because the actions we take in these few years will have impacts for the next few hundred years. And and so it's for different parties to formulate a programme that responds to that moment. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sort of 
somebody who believes that ideas do matter in politics. I mean, ideas on their own don't win you elections, but without them, you definitely don't win elections. And that's the kind of contribution that I'm trying to make with this uh, with this book. Terrific, Ed. Thanks very much for cheering us all up. I should have said at some point this book, in a sense, is a spin-off of Ed's own podcast with Jeff Lloyd, Reasons to be Cheerful. So look that up as well as looking up the book. If you want to try before you buy, as it were, you can look up Samir Rahim's review on the Prospect website. But uh, thanks to all of you for listening in at home. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a view, which... which uh, helps us get more people listening (laughs) goodbye stay safe and we'll see you next week Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.